Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. It's October 13th, 1881, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Talich Theatre Sefai, Havrit Halhel Beshlosh, Osebe October Elef Shimon Mino Shmene Vechat, Kesha Ali Eza bin Yehado Adav, Havaravi Skimu Adabel, Avaraki Avrit Basikoten. Yes, it was today in history in 1881, as I just said, when the process of the Hebrew language revival began, as Eliza Ben Yehuda and friends agreed to exclusively speak Hebrew in their conversations. Yeah, and this conversation took place at a Parisian cafe. And I must say, it must have been quite an irritating conversation, both to take part in and to witness, because this was the start of the revival of modern Hebrew, a language that had been dead in spoken form at least for thousands of years. But at this stage, this language had missed out on the development of a lot of important modern words, including things like bicycle, towel, and crucially for being in a cafe, the word coffee. (laughs) It didn't seem to slow down Elizabeth Yehuda though. He said later in his memoir, we sat and talked for two hours about my plans for the future and my work in Jerusalem and also about all the political questions of the day. Uh, He said that was the first time I spoke Hebrew at such length and about such serious topics because, you know, he had been studying Hebrew at this time for years. So he had obviously spoken out loud before this point. It was just this was the first time he'd actually sat down and had what we would recognise as just a normal conversation. Yeah, and Ben Yehuda had had pretty intense religious instruction from the age of three. I mean, his family had been keen for him to be a rabbi, although in the end he ended up being a doctor, which I I don't know where that stands in the Jewish metric of pride. (laughs) (laughs) Probably still okay with that. Um, But it meant that he was very familiar with the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud. But as you're saying, making repetitive meditative prayer based on ancient language, even if you say it every day, it sort of washes over you. Having a conversation in this ancient script... It's sort of like being asked to speak exclusively in David Bowie song lyrics, isn't it? It doesn't matter how well you think you know them. Trying to reach for that bit of your brain that, as you say, is the word for something practical. I'd like an omelette. must have been really difficult. This was a language that, after all, had flourished from roughly the 13th to the 2nd centuries BC when the uh, Hebrew Bible, which, you know, we also know as the Old Testament, was collected. But then after the 2nd century BC, that's when Jewish people started being increasingly ostracized and oppressed and 
they were really forced to migrate around Europe and just adopt the languages of the country that they were in. So that's how Hebrew sort of fell by the wayside and traditionally Hebrew people began using new languages like Yiddish, which was a mixture of Hebrew and German and Slavic and all of that. Yeah, Ben Yehuda himself was a native Yiddish speaker. He was born in what was then the Russian Empire. And to a lot of people, that was precisely why the idea of reviving Hebrew as a conversational language was you know, seen as foolish, if not sacrilegious. You know, if you're a more devout Jew, you might see Hebrew as being a language that was best used only for religious purposes and mm. that it was you know, blasphemous to use it to talk about the weather or your dog. Even to secular Jews, they thought, well, so many Jews are using Yiddish as their mother tongue. That would be the most natural language to have in, say, a Jewish state. And that was actually the reason that there was one small scenario where Hebrew was used conversationally before this era, and that was as a pidgin language in Ottoman ruled Jerusalem, where you had Jews from all these different communities who didn't have a shared language. They would use Hebrew, which you know they had a kind of passing familiarity with from scripture, as a kind of improvised language of communication, but certainly with no idea of turning it into a full-fledged language. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning that in Yiddish, the Hebrew alphabet was still being used when it was written down. So it's easier to learn Hebrew than other languages if you're a native Yiddish speaker. But for Ben Yehuda, who, as you say, came from Lithuania and then went to Paris, there were a couple of things that he saw that pushed him down this path, I think. One was Jewish nationalism burgeoning there in France. The other was he saw the creation of Bulgaria in this period mm. and essentially thought, wow, if, if the Bulgarians can have their own land, why not the Jews too. And the thinking was, well, if there's a common language, that's also just practical for people to be able to do. Yeah, I mean, he moved to Jerusalem in 1881. And he and his wife, once they got there, made the decision only to speak Hebrew to each other. And they also made the decision to raise their son, Itamar ben Avi, to be the first native Hebrew speaker in almost 2000 years. And Ben Yehuda actually went to enormous pains to ensure that this child would only ever hear Hebrew in his early years. And according to biographers, even when guests came over to their home, uh, Ben Yehuda would send his son away so that he didn't pick up any of the words that they were using, which sounds something like psychological experiment meets a sort of slightly abusive behavior towards your own kid. Yeah, because he's done nothing wrong. Right. Go to bed. There's someone downstairs speaking Italian. <laughs> yeah, speaking a language that actually exists at the moment. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was an incredibly lonely childhood. His three younger siblings died in diphtheria outbreak. Not only was he kept apart from other children, but even the people who could actually speak Hebrew fluently, the devout Jews, they kept away from the family. They saw them as crackpots who were you know, teetering on the verge of blasphemy. Although, interestingly, he did seem to turn out not too resentful, considering that this sounds like the worst childhood ever. He did later become his father's biographer and wrote and ran Hebrew newspapers. I would be writing a newspaper in any other language in the world if it was me. <laughs> Although he did have one, you know, screw you dad, he favoured the use of a Latin alphabet. Well, he actually <laughs> remembers the moment that he started to speak Hebrew for the first time himself at the age of four. He'd been mute until the age of four and traces it back to his father's weird behaviour. Mm. which was an occasion when his mum was singing a Russian lullaby from her youth to him. Ben Yehuda turns up at the house and goes, absolutely apeshit. Don't you go singing Russian in my house. We only speak Hebrew here. Mm. And he said in the memoirs, quote, it caused such a great shock to pass over me when I saw my father in his anger and my mother in her grief and tears, and the muteness was removed from my lips and speech came to my mouth. I mean, it's so hard to think of this being 
a successful technique when there's only a handful of people who he would possibly be able to communicate with. But for Ben Yehuda, at least, it was the starting point for a whole ethos that he then took to the Hebrew educational system that flourished even without him because so many people were immediately on board with with the idea and they got the sense that, you know, you surround yourself in whatever your target language is and that's the best way to possibly pick it up. And I think because he was coming at it from a secular rather than a religious perspective, he just set about coining new words, raiding Arabic, other languages, just to plug in all of those gaps that Hebrew had missed out on during sort of 1500 years of being a dormant language. Mm. At the time, though, the fruits of his labours was slow to take effect. In 1891, he estimated that there were four households in Jerusalem who were using Hebrew as their everyday language. But that was about to explode. You know, this was a young country and that Hebrew immersion schools were being brought in, which meant you were getting slowly this generation of children who were speaking Hebrew fluently where maybe their parents at home only had a a shaky grasp of the language. Mm. I mean for Ben Yehuda himself his health issues meant that his life was cut very very short indeed but he did live just long enough to see Hebrew become uh, the official language of Jews in Palestine and then that went on to become one of two official languages in the modern state of Israel so he did live just long enough to see the fruits of his work, but he couldn't possibly, I would have thought, even have hoped to imagine how successful that project would have been. Yeah, the turning point really came just around the time of World War One. So in the years leading up to the war, there'd been this big influx of Jewish immigrants to Palestine who were really influenced by the revolutionary ideals that were going around Europe. You know, they're very politically motivated to pick up the language. And around that same time, the first students of Hebrew only education were becoming adults and starting to raise their children as native speakers. So by 1914, there were more than 30,000 native Hebrew speakers. And it was around this point that stuff like street signs and public information boards were starting to be conducted only in Hebrew. A new arrivals heard speaking their native tongue on the streets faced the dreaded admonishment, Yehudi, Dabar Ivrit, Jew, speak Hebrew. (laughs) Mm. That practicality was something that Ben Yehuda completely understood. For example, publishing a newspaper which had as low a price as possible Mm. to be the vehicle that would introduce new words which were missing, like fashion. There wasn't a word for fashion in the Bible, but obviously that's the kind of thing that people use in their daily life. And then the the newspaper tells you that. So he understood people needed simple everyday practical signposts to help them adopt this language. He also wrote the first modern Hebrew dictionary, which couldn't have been a very hard interview process, given that no one else was able to do that. Um, <laughs> he also had um, to come up with the word for dictionary in Hebrew. They didn't have one, so he made one up. <laughs> I love that. It's like, okay, page one, what's the first word that we need yeah. a new word for? Oh, yes, how, the thing itself you're reading How now. would you sell any copies? People wouldn't know what they were looking at. <laughs> and so another week of retrospecting ends. But next week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.